This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Glenday, coming to you from Canberra on Ngunnawal country. Welcome to This Week. The Northern Hemisphere has been burning for months, and now there are warnings we could face a big bushfire season here in Australia. The question is, are we ready? And if you've been on holidays overseas recently, you probably noticed the Aussie dollar has been plunging. We'll take a look at what it might mean for everyone with a mortgage. But first... A mutiny made up of at least 20,000 troops is marching on Moscow, with the group's leader calling for an armed rebellion. Ever since Yevgeny Prigozhin launched a short-lived mutiny in Russia, marching with his group of Wagner mercenaries towards Moscow, there has been a question about his fate. And this week, that was answered in dramatic fashion. His private jet plunged suddenly to the ground outside Moscow, killing the Wagner leader and nine other people. At least, that's what Russian authorities said happened. The country's president, Vladimir Putin, later emerged to say Prigozhin had been a difficult man with a difficult fate and made serious mistakes, but that he'd also achieved results. My initial reaction was, well, finally, uh, because if Prigozhin is indeed dead and was not board that aeroplane, then it's two months to the day that he had attempted to march on Moscow with his private army. Samir Puri is a senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Singapore. And you were left wondering in those two months, well, how on earth has Putin allowed the man responsible for this attempted coup to live? Uh, we, you know, we got the answer when the plane came down that he hasn't. And he's obviously waited a, a period of time for reasons we don't know why uh, to order his, his removal, his, his death. But it is actually, as I think one of the newspapers remarked, a little bit like the Godfather in terms of, uh, you know, you upset the mafia boss, well, eventually he's going to get to you at some point. Mm. Like almost everything to do with Russia, there's a bit of uncertainty around this. But uh, can you step us through what do we know for sure about what happened and who was on the plane? So what do we know for sure? We know for sure that there's footage that I'm sure all of us have now seen taken from the ground someone's mobile phone likely of the private plane spiraling to the to the ground and exploding we also know that there was a passenger list and that passenger list uh, is a who's who of the wagner private military group prigozhin himself uh, the man who is the principal founder uh, but also another rather fearsome character called dmitry utkin who is uh, very nasty uh, individual who was actually a veteran of the Russian intelligence services, like a lot of the original Wagner group, and had been a key player in its military successes going back in the day. There was another sort of three Wagner senior personnel, funders, people in charge of different bits of their operations, uh, and pilots, uh, uh, and one, one woman on board who was, I think, a flight crew. I guess what we don't know is, was this shot down by mm. a surface-to-air missile? 
was it uh, down through a mechanical fault or some sort of explosion on board? So a lot of unanswered questions as to precisely what brought the plane down in terms of uh, malfunction or, or missile or explosion. Yeah, what could be the possible explanations for this? Uh, the explanation has got to be the long reach of Putin's vengeance, mm. uh, because when we saw that uh, Wagner military column march up the road uh, from Rostov on the Don to Moscow, there were actually a number of Russian aircraft, Russian Air Force aircraft scrambled to find out what was going on, intercept that column that were shot down mm. by the Wagner Force's own surface-to-air missiles. So that's something else where we're possibly seeing is a sort of the signature of retaliation carrying the mark of, of one of the many sins that Prigozhin is seen to have committed in the last couple, uh, two months ago, which was to bring down Russian aircraft. His aircraft has itself been brought down. He has been brought down, crashing to the ground to, to die in, in a fiery death in a way that some of those Russian pilots uh, suffered at the hands of Wagner forces as they marched up to Moscow. So that, I think, is more than just symbolism. That might also be the mark of, of the assassin. Analysts had joked uh, that uh, he should be wary of drinking radioactive tea or going anywhere near perfume bottles that might contain nerve agents. This sort of thing is not that surprising for Putin's Russia, is it? Because it's happened before. That's right. There's a long line of grisly murders. Uh, there are some very famous ones like Alexander Litvinenko, the FSB double agent who was killed in London with polonium poisoning. That's now quite a number of years ago. Even uh, the killing of Russian political dissidents, all sorts of attempted murders of defecting Russian military personnel, intelligence personnel, the Skripal poisoning also in the UK and Salisbury from a few years back. Uh, I should also add there's been a number of Russian oligarchs who have been pushed out of windows or have fallen out of windows, have died in car accidents, all sorts of things as the, the Kremlin and its security services uh, leave no stone unturned in clearing up their, their, the loose ends they feel of deals gone wrong and former loyalists who've turned against them or overstepped the mark. Uh, I should just add, of course, though, that with Prigozhin, there is something extraordinarily, dare I say, poetic about it, because he was such a servant of Putin, mm. doing Putin's dirty work. You know, 20 years worth of military service for the Russians, you know, Chechnya, Syria, everywhere else. So these were real hardcore loyalists, not people on the fringes of things, but people who were you know, enacting the Kremlin's uh, you know, deepest, darkest national interest uh, operations uh, in different parts of Eastern Europe and around the world who appear actually to revisit the instance of two months ago to have overstepped the mark in terms of the level of criticism they thought they could direct against the Russian government for what they thought was a failed strategy in Ukraine. Mm. That was their sin. And, and of course, marching on Moscow, which has resulted in, in their killing. OK, so we think Prokhorjian is now dead. Uh, can you remind us about who he was and about the fairly extraordinary rise of his Wagner group? Well, he has quite odd and humble upbringings. Uh, you know, he'd spent time in prison himself. He clearly comes from a troubled background. Famously, he tried to set up a hot dog business after a trip to America. <laughs> this is in Russia in the two, early 2000s. Mm. He nicknamed Putin's chef for a variety of business interests that he had that served the Kremlin, including restaurants and catering businesses. But in and amongst the sort of the free-for-all of 2000s Russia, where capitalism was unleashed on the country for the first time, and people like Prigozhin were setting up businesses and actually getting a good return for it, 
Uh, he branched out into private security. And that's the birth of the Wagner Group well over a decade ago. And it's initially, just to recap, uh, initially was quite a specialized security company recruiting former GRU or Spetsnaz or Russian airborne soldiers. So actually quite elite soldiers and intelligence personnel to take part in black operations uh, wherever the Kremlin deemed them to be, you know, deemed itself to want uh, a bit of deniability in terms of uh, the people it was sending to do the fighting and the killing. But it morphed over this Ukraine war of the last sort of 18 months or so into this recruitment machine for former convicts. Mm. And I guess, suppose Prigozhin, that famous footage of him standing in a prison yard, uh, making this sort of deal with the devil to these incarcerated Russians, saying six months, I think that was the deal initially on the front line, and you'll be pardoned. But we know, of course, those convicts were sent into the meat grinder of the, the war in Ukraine. Many of them were just mown mm. down by the Ukrainians as they advanced in human wave attacks. And that's perhaps where Prigozhin uh, became, I guess, disillusioned. Uh, he, of course, you know, he was, a, you know, I'm sure, a man without much of a conscience. But nonetheless, he was literally mm. contracting people to die. So where did things start to go wrong for Prigozhin? How did he begin to fall out with Putin, but in particular, some of Putin's closest generals? Things changed for Prigozhin completely between, let's say, last summer and now. And the reason is, around August, September last summer, 2022, the uh, Defence Ministry of Russia decided they would conquer East and Southern Ukraine. They'd give up, of course, taking Kiev and Kharkiv and these other cities. And Prigozhin presented himself in the Wagner Group as the spearhead of this offensive in the East. Mm. And he zeroed in on Bakhmut, this town that became, above all of its strategic significance, the focal point of Russia's offensive, and Wagner took over this offensive. But this offensive began in August, September last year, and it wasn't really completed until earlier this year. Six, seven months of draining warfare where Wagner achieved its goal, but very slowly, mm. and at a cost that I think drained Prigozhin and probably damaged his reputation as this elite vanguard. And it led to an extraordinary series of back-and-forth tirades between him and the Russian defence ministry, where he accused Sergei Shoigu, the defence minister, of withholding uh, munitions and supplies for Wagner. And in turn, uh, it appears that the Russian defence ministry did indeed deny some support, mm. probably a lot of internal rivalry between them. Mm. And looking forward now, what does this crash mean, do you think, for the Wagner group? Right. So the future of the Wagner group is one of the great uncertainties. There's mm. clearly still some of the original hardcore of, of quite well-trained veterans. We know that, of course, they went to Belarus after the coup. They've been publicly taking part in training the Belarus military. Uh, some may have gone back to parts of Africa where Wagner still has some contracts to support local governments uh, uh, against whatever internal security threats they felt they were facing. But the Kremlin is very likely to want to mainstream the Wagner uh, personnel mm. into either a new private entity that they can control more closely, which I think is more likely than bringing them back in as Russian state servants. So there is a problem as to what you do with them. But I would imagine that another private vehicle that has not got a Prigozhin figure heading it 
that isn't as much of a sort of a set of loose cannons, mm. but is something that's much more clearly tied down to the deck of the Russian uh, defence architecture is likely to be the outcome because the the third outcome is that these guys are freebooters, they're rebels without a cause, they're bouncing around East Europe, they're bouncing around the world with the skills of training they have, is a pretty troubling thought. And I just don't think that Putin would want that particular eventuality mm. to, to take, take root. And what do you think this might mean for Russia and the Kremlin? Because Wagner's mutiny seemed to be the most serious threat so far to Putin's grip on power. And if the president is indeed responsible for this killing, even in some sort of extended way, is that a sign, do you think, that he's strong, showing his strength, or is it actually a sign that he's quite weak? Well, people are totally divided on whether this shows Putin's strength or weakness. And I guess you can see in this what you like. Mm. Obviously, if there is a retaliation attempt on Putin somehow by a, a very loyal person to Prigozhin, that would be another blow to Putin sort of strengthening after this affair. But I would certainly suggest uh, that it has strengthened him in the short term because it's shown that uh, treason and disobedience has punished and those involved pay the ultimate price. Mm. I suppose there is one other area in which this uh, incident, this killing will reverberate, is that's on the battlefield of Ukraine. Because even if Putin, let's say, survives in the Kremlin, there's also the possibility of the degrading of Russia's war effort because the infighting in and amongst people in and out of of uniform who are running this war effort will have only worsened because of this affair. What I would say is that Vladimir Putin understands how to run Russia as a modern day czar because he understands the chaos inherent in running Russia. Samir Puri is a senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Singapore. Hey, if anybody's still out here, it's time to go! If anybody's still out here, it's time to go! It's time to go! For months now, swathes of the Northern Hemisphere have been burning. The pine trees on the beach. The safe way is the beach. Just stick to the water. The death toll from the fires that ripped through Hawaii two weeks ago has now risen to over 110, and more than 1,000 people are still missing. As new temperature records have been set, fires have raged from Algeria to Canada, Spain and Greece, where the burnt remains of 18 people were found near the Turkish border this week. Hundreds of firefighters have been battling ferocious blazes in the Evros region since Saturday. Authorities believe the 18 bodies found near a shack on the edge of a forest could have been migrants. And here in Australia, there were warnings this week of a serious summer of fires ahead. After three relatively wet years, fire authorities warned about bushfire risks across large parts of Australia's north and east. Right across the world, we're seeing more fire disasters. And that's so concerning because this is a pattern now because these things are repeating. David Bowman is a professor of pyrogeography. Yes, he's a bushfire expert at the University of Tasmania. The most rapid change as a natural hazard is occurring in wildfire disasters. So it's not to say they're the worst or the biggest natural hazard disasters. They're just the ones that seem to be on an uptick. Mm. Can you tell us more about the Northern Hemisphere fires? What made them so severe this year? Well, what's making fires around the world full stop severe is the fact that we're in a warmer and more drying climate. 
So we're aridifying, we're drying out landscapes. And that's extremely serious because it increases the efficiency of lightning ignitions and it increases the likelihood of fires from human sources. And all of these fires are causing basically like a fire fever. Wherever a fire can be, fire is finding a way to spread into these landscapes. Mm. July was Earth's hottest month on record and you know a lot of attention has been paid to the hot temperatures in the southern hemisphere. It was pretty warm in large parts of Australia too. Does that have an impact for our summer? Yeah, absolutely. So if we have dry winters like we've had here um, and we're seeing you know these warmer temperatures around Australia, that means that the landscapes are drying out earlier and they're drying out more effectively. The leaf litter is very dry. You'll start seeing logs drying out. You'll start seeing creeks drying out. And they are very, very major diagnostics of a landscape becoming ready to, to burn. So quite a few people think the fires overseas could be a warning for us here. This week, Rob Webb from the Australasian Fire Authorities Council said that we could be headed for the worst bushfires since Black Summer. The strong message is that plan and prepare. We're often asked at this time of the year, will it be as bad as Black Summer? But the strong retort is it doesn't need to be a Black Summer to be dangerous. David, why is the risk so serious this year and where is most vulnerable? So the risk goes back to these warming temperatures. And when you go into an El Nino, typically you see drier and hotter conditions. Imagine a giant hairdryer blasting hot air all over Eastern Australia. Well, that's the impact of an El Nino. A hot, dry summer is going to be a very significantly scary thing because so much of the landscape will be primed to burn. But there's a second dimension. And the second dimension is the effect of these wet seasons. We've just had the La Nina and we've had a lot of flooding and a lot of rain. A massive amount of that water ran off in floods, but it also caused prolific growth. So you've got all of this very, very flammable um, material across the landscape and then we're going into this lightly very hot dry summer and we've got ingredients to make a very dangerous fire season. I wouldn't be predicting a repeat of anything like the black summer fires. I would be seeing most likely very fast moving grass fires. So a lot of areas that people are not sort of used to seeing fire maybe and around the edges of towns and cities. Uh, and also, we may see some really significant, short and severe fire outbreaks in, in forests. OK, so I just want to spell this out. So we've got a few factors coming together. El Nino, which is helping make things hotter and drier. There's more bush, as you mentioned, because of all the rain we've had over the past couple of years. And then climate change on top of that. And we know that climate change is making these events more severe and more likely to occur. How, how much worse will these disasters and fires get, do you think, with the current trends of warming each year? Well, the nightmare scenario is that the forests around the world become major sources of greenhouse gas 
The Canadian wildfires are breaking records and damaging much of the world's air quality. Canada's raging wildfires generate record levels of carbon emissions. Forest fires in Canada this year have released 290 million tons of carbon, doubling the previous annual record. And they turbocharge climate change and then you could go into basically, you know, it's been theorized a hothouse world where ice doesn't pretty much exist anymore. Now, it's unlikely that we would get anywhere near that, but we've got to be really cognizant of the fact that all of these fires are pumping more greenhouse gas into the atmosphere and exacerbating climate change. So we're going to start thinking about the effect of wildfire on planetary health. It's not just about it's a threat to cities and suburbs and livelihoods and so on. It's also that we're really going to be motivated to try to stem these major extreme fires to stabilise the climate, because if we don't, we will start exacerbating climate change and start going down a very dangerous pathway towards a hothouse world. Mm. Okay, that sounds like something we need to start getting prepared for now. After the last bushfires, we had a Royal Commission into the fires and also uh, into other natural disasters. Can you remind us what did it recommend and what's come of it? Are we ready? So the Bushfire Royal Commission was, you know, an amazing survey and they touched on all of the key issues, preparation, community responsibility, resourcing, firefighting and so on. So it's it's a, a massive document. And the problem is that those recommendations are really only being acted on in a very gradual way. So it's incrementalism. And we're not seeing the transformative, the, the vibe that we need that, you know, suddenly it's like, wow, you know, we've really got to get a grip on bushfires and we've really got to change community attitudes. We've really got to change the way we're resourcing firefighting. We've really got to drive bushfire adaptation that we're just not seeing that. We're just seeing small incremental changes and they're all important, increasing resourcing, increased fuel management programs and so on. It's not to detract from the efforts that are being made. It's just that it's not that sense of this is a switching to a mm. to a major prioritisation of this issue. And that is concerning because we're meaning that we're going into a dangerous fire season not particularly significantly better prepared than we were last time. Mm, Yeah. So what could communities, people who are listening to this now, be doing to adapt for this summer? Yeah, look, I was reflecting on this and I was thinking it's a scaling issue. If we could get communities and individuals to take responsibility for their gardens and communities to take responsibility for the peri-urban areas that in bushland areas, a lot more interest in fuel management, clearing, you know, design, maybe irrigating with wastewater, we could actually, at scale, start changing the risk profile of our towns and suburbs. Overnight, we could start seeing transformations where villages that are very prone to being obliterated by bushfires would suddenly become very fire safe. Mm. So that's the sort of choices that we've got And I think in the community, I think a lot of people are waiting that there's the hunger for this change, but they're not really knowing 
how to drive these changes. One of the things that government could do is really start pioneering pathways to incentivise, educate and resource mm. individual and community fire preparation and fuel management. So, David, you've described a, a pretty dangerous combination. Conditions are getting worse, fires are getting worse, and on the whole, we're not doing enough to prepare ahead of what looks to be a pretty dangerous summer, potentially. What will happen, what could happen, if we aren't ready when the next big lot of fires ignite and start spreading? Well, Lahina. At least six people have died in ferocious wildfires in Hawaii's... Maui With the death toll now at 96, at least 101 people are known to have died, and that figure... So you mean the most recent fires in Hawaii? That was exactly that problem, that the tragedy, the absolute bone-crushing tragedy of that disaster was that if there had been better fuel management and fire preparation in that community, they could have avoided significantly avoided the catastrophe that unfolded there. And, you know, what's particularly crushing is that fire scientists, fire managers had been saying that in the Hawaiian Islands, that we had to get a grip. And there was, again, this sense that we've got all the time in the world, and you don't. And now the recriminations are bubbling up. David Bowman is from the University of Tasmania. Now, if you've had to spend your dollars overseas recently, you might have noticed you're not getting quite so much bang for your buck. The Aussie dollar has weakened appreciably in recent days. Have a look at this. The Aussie dollar has fallen to its lowest level in nine months, wreaking havoc on the stock market. Some economists are predicting uh, the Aussie dollar will dip below 60 US cents in the near term. Our dollar has hit some of its lowest levels against America's since the global financial crisis, and that could be bad news for inflation and interest rates. If we see a materially weaker Australian dollar, uh, we could see an inflation pulse and that may need a policy response, which challengingly means further rate hikes perhaps. Joe Masters is the chief economist with Australian financial services firm Baron Joey Capital Partners. The people that are most challenged when the currency is weak are companies that import because their costs go up, but also the consumers who buy those things that we import. So you can think about things like cars, about petrol, medicine, furniture, those sorts of things we typically see the price will rise. We also know that consumer confidence tends to get hit when the currency is weak. So in the minds of households, it feels like something that's not very good. And of course, for Australians that are lucky enough to be traveling overseas, their holidays become a little bit more expensive. So China is our largest trading partner, and it is a big reason our dollar is falling. Can you tell us what's happening to cause this? China is critically important for Australia. It's also critically important for most countries. So when China wobbles, we tend to get a double whammy impact. There's a direct impact on our economy through commodity prices, through international students and tourism. But there's also a second round impact because other places that we sell our goods to tend to weaken as well. Now, what we're seeing in China is at the moment um, growth is stalling. Uh, we can see that across consumer spending, investment, credit growth, house prices, building of property, and that's surprising. And so why is it surprising? China only exited COVID lockdowns early 
earlier this year. And what we've seen in every other economy in the world is when you exit lockdowns, and hopefully Australians remember when we did that, the economy boomed. People had saved a lot of money and they they got out and they spent and, and the economy was really strong. But in China, that rebound hasn't really taken off. Mm. Joe, there's another thing happening in China, though, too, isn't there? The second thing that's happening in China is their property sector is very leveraged. Lots of people might have heard about these cities that are being built with no one to, to buy the apartments or to live in them. So we're also seeing concerns around what we call financial stability. And we've seen some large uh, developers in China who have filed for bankruptcy in the US. So the combination of those two is quite a challenging outlook for arguably the world's you know, most impactful economy. Mm. And so it's challenging, just to spell this out, because if China goes into a recession, it reduces its demand on the things we sell it, like iron ore, for example, and that means that our economy can, can take a hit as well, essentially. That's exactly right. Now, things like iron ore and coal are the most obvious channels, but tourism and international students are now some of our largest mm. exports, actually. So... This time around, we're going to see an impact through that channel as well, and in particular because it's the consumer in China that seems uh, to be quite weak. Um, their wealth has been hit. Unemployment amongst young people in China is very, very high. So we're really seeing this sort of middle class of China that's really driven that expansion start to kind of contract. And so the impact's bigger than it would have been, say, 15 or 20 years ago. Right. That is interesting. One of the other big factors at play when it comes to our dollar is the American economy. The US has higher interest rates than us, and it might even raise them again. Why does that affect our dollar? Yeah. So relative interest rates are very important for currencies. When you have relatively high interest rates, you tend to bring investors into your market. Now, at the moment, our interest rates are relatively low, below that of the US, which is actually quite unusual. So we're not seeing the same amount of offshore investor interest coming in to the country, and that weighs on the currency. Hmm. Do we know, can we even guess where the Aussie dollar might end up at the end of this year? Look, as an economist, it's been really hard forecasting anything in the last three or four years with the pandemic and the supply shock and and all these other things that mm. are moving. If we see a materially weaker Australian dollar, uh, we could see an inflation pulse, and that may need a policy response, which, you know, challengingly means further rate hikes, perhaps. And just to be clear about the reason for that, that's because if our dollar is weaker against other currencies, then the stuff we import is more expensive. That's exactly right. The mm. good news is Australian households are already starting to spend a lot less than they were. And in that environment, it might be harder for firms to pass on these costs to households because demand's falling. And that's what we need. We need the economy to slow. We need demand to be lower so that we can lower inflation. Joe Masters is the chief economist with financial services firm Baron Joey Capital Partners. And that's the episode for this week. You can subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. It's produced by Nell Whitehead, Rachel Hayter, Anna John and me, James Glenday. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.